Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Myself and my colleagues here at Renewable Properties are in the business of getting more renewable energy onto the grid. And really what that means is, you know, we're on the front lines of fighting climate change. Most of our business looking ahead is really focused on community solar, which is a subsegment of solar that really provides access to solar for those that otherwise wouldn't be able to benefit from it. Hey there, solar warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Thank you for taking time out of your precious day to give us the one non-renewable resource you've got. Of course, your time, your attention is worth everything to us. So I hope that by the end of this conversation, you'll be walking away with some real nuggets of wisdom, some tactical, practical advice, and you'll feel that you have invested that time in a worthwhile manner. Today's entrepreneur is taking practical experience from not only decade plus time in the solar industry, but deep family roots in real estate to address how we roll out the gigawatts of solar that we need to. And in a way that gives more people access to clean, reliable electricity. Renewable Properties was founded by Aaron Halimi as the sophomore act to his development career in companies like Borrego, if you remember. We may or may not joke about how Aaron and Aaron uh, both were at Borrego at the same time and we're often confused for one another. Nevertheless, uh, once you get to know Aaron, you won't confuse him for anyone else. He's very distinct and uh, a very distinct individual who has uh, carved out a place in the industry that certainly has a reputation, uh, having partnered with Borrego and many others. I'm excited today to explain the ways that they've developed hundreds of megawatts of projects, multiple transactions across the United States, and are helping to evolve how the solar industry sells solar, in particular community solar, and probably additional products that we'll dig into. If you like to dig into these kinds of stories, the founders on the front lines of the clean energy transition, you, my friend, are in the right place. I welcome you in. If it's your first time, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss a single episode that comes out twice a week, just like this. Deep executive profiles, folks like Aaron, and tactical, practical episodes on Tuesdays that dive into specific subject matter expertise to help you further your business and your career. For now, I want you to buckle your seats. We're going to dive into another practical, powerful conversation here on Suncast. Aaron, let's kick things off at um, really a high level, thinking about the core problem that you maybe at a Thanksgiving or holiday dinner might describe as the why you're in business trying to roll solar out on as many farm properties as possible. Yeah, well, I mean, at at its core, myself and my colleagues here at Renewable Properties are in the uh, business of getting more renewable energy onto the grid. And really what that means is, you know, we're on the front lines of 
fighting climate change. I mean, it's a mission-driven business. That's the problem that we're tackling. Uh, and we play within a certain sub-segment of the market, but at a really high level, we're in the business of fighting climate change and getting more renewable energy onto the grid. Mm. With that in mind then, for those who are unfamiliar with renewable properties, why don't you introduce the company that you've created to try and solve that problem? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, renewable properties at its core develops, owns, and operates renewable energy projects throughout the United States. We primarily target projects that range anywhere from 1 to 20 megawatts in size, um, typically connecting at distribution level voltages, and most of the time selling power to utilities on a wholesale basis, although most of our business looking ahead is really focused on community solar, which is a subsegment of solar that really provides access to solar uh, for those that otherwise wouldn't be able to uh, benefit from it. So, you know, those that may not own their home, those that uh, may not have the economic means to put solar on their house, they may not have the right geography or geometry of their house, they may have trees, they may be uh, a renter or a small business owner. And, you know, community solar as a construct provides a framework for those that otherwise couldn't access solar, provides a mechanism for them to access it both in terms of the economic benefits, but also the in environmental benefits in, in, in providing an a avenue and um, you know, forum for those to, to really take part in, in fighting climate change. You know, we've covered community solar here uh, quite a bit in depth. For, for those who are relatively unfamiliar, roughly how long, you know, you and I have been in this industry for a long time. How long did you kind of sit on the sidelines watching the community solar segment build before you realize like, wait, I've got something I can contribute here. And what was the impetus that really pushed you into creating a business around it? Yeah, those are great questions. So I guess just, just to kind of back up, um, you know, I've been in solar for about 15 years. I got into solar back in January, 2008 through the land side of a deal. As you mentioned earlier, I spent a, a good amount of my career working at Borrego Solar alongside many other solar uh, entrepreneurs uh, and, and folks that I still call close friends to this day. Uh, a lot of them actually work with me at Renewable Properties now. And so when I started Renewable Properties about six and a half years ago, we were primarily just focused on small-scale utility projects. So you know, one to 20 megawatts, distribution level interconnects, but really selling power to utilities on a wholesale basis. This was March of 2017. And back then, Community Solar was just kind of starting to uh, make a name for itself. Uh, primarily, the Massachusetts Smart Program was really like the game in town that everybody was, was um, you know, focused on. And, you know, back then, Community Solar really... Um, was a smaller segment of the industry. And a lot of the folks that were doing it were vertically integrated and had the subscription capabilities in-house. And so um, I think the big thing that changed for us and for most of the market and a lot of the growth is that the rise of the third-party subscriber company, uh, right? So other companies that are not developer, owner, operators, but folks that really just focus on the customer acquisition and the ongoing customer management, you know, those companies were forming, those companies started to become more mature, and ultimately the market became more mature as well. And so at that point in time, we said, okay, community solar is something that fits to our core competency of, you know, developing, um, you know, developing land. So going out and securing parcels of land and getting the permits and getting the interconnection agreements and securing all the contracts with the utilities and 
getting the financing and construction and all that great stuff that goes into actually building a renewable energy project, we said, okay, we can apply the same set of skill sets to this community solar segment that's rapidly growing because let's be honest, it just makes a lot of sense, right? It, it provides an avenue for those to access solar that otherwise wouldn't get it. And it provides it with savings, right? For these customers. It's it's a really a win-win uh, you know, mechanism, if you will. And so I think that's why you've seen it now roll out in over 20 states across the country. And, and so all those things combined kind of led us to say, okay, let's start pivoting into community solar. Uh, and now, as I sit here today, you know, about 80% of our pipeline, uh, development pipeline, we have a gigawatt of solar and energy storage development pipeline is, is, is geared towards community solar programs across the country. Wow. That's a massive, uh, that's a massive number for community solar. That makes you guys one of the larger developers for sure. So you mentioned the rise of third-party aggregation of subscribers and it ties to something else that I was really curious about because one is to acknowledge the opportunity that arose, the pivot that internally you guys decided on how to re how to redirect your resources, that being for community solar as a category, a way to sell the electrons. You, you also mentioned the mass smart program. I think timing is everything for entrepreneurs. So if you think back over the last five, 10, 15 years that we've been in the industry, what do you think really needed to be true? Why, why would this have failed if not for fill in the blank? You know, what's interesting about this business, right, is it's very much a bleeding edge business, right? We're developing uh, clean energy assets. Um, now, you know, with the electrification of pretty much everything, you know, those product types can kind of move into other things other than energy generation, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, but what's interesting about that is it's also a capital intensive business, right? And so you need a lot of capital to get these projects done. And so you kind of see this you know, bleeding end technology piece intersect with a real capital intensive project finance heavy, um, you know, need. And so where I'm going with that is in the early days of community solar, the project finance community didn't really want to touch it, right? They were like, oh, how does this work? Like, this is risky. Like those subscribers could maybe leave. Like, how does this work? You know, there's, there's an education uh, process that was going on. And so I think Without tax equity and debt truly taking the time to understand the regulatory frameworks and the policies, uh, which again are state specific in solar, it makes it even that it makes that learning curve even that much bigger, right? Or, or more nuanced. Um, you know, without those financing parties really saying, okay, yeah, this is a product type that we can get behind. I mean, I can make I can make the argument to you that it's actually on a risk adjusted basis far superior than a utility bus bar PPA, um, yeah. which I'm happy to go into in a minute. Um, so it's it's those folks as well as uh, the third party subscriber companies. I really don't think community solar would proliferate would be proliferating like it is today if there weren't companies saying, okay, I'm just going to focus on customer acquisition and customer subscription because that skill set is different than the folks that do project development, right? And so mm -hmm. I'm a I'm a great example of that. I don't do the subscription in house. I partner with other solar companies right. that do that, right? And just like those subscriber companies don't develop, they partner with companies like me to get access to projects, right? And so yeah. um, and you have lots of examples of that innovation across the solar value chain over the years. I mean, that's one of the great things about the solar industry is that 
To your earlier point, it requires a lot of elbow grease or grit to ultimately get these projects done, right? That cliche term of the solar coaster is a real thing. Uh, it is very real. And for those of us that have been around for a while, we've experienced all the ups and downs. And, you know, all of that kind of combined, I think, you know, gets you to a place where, you know, the industry has continued to mature. And it's wild to think about where we were 10 years ago. Well, even think about where we were five years ago, right? If you look at like the project finance market five years ago relative to where it is today and relative to where it's going on the heels of the IRA, I mean, it's, it's very exciting. Hey, if you're looking for a way to maximize the ROI for your next utility project, I would like to point you to SunGrow's new SG4400 modular inverter. This new innovative solution will reduce capital and operating expenses because it arrives already on a skid with a step-up transformer. It's built using four 1100 kW modules so that if one of them fails, well, the other three keep powering right on through as the DC and AC protection are completely separate between the modules. You can learn more about this fantastic new product and more at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. You know, it's fascinating as you go through explaining how the industry is evolved, in particular things like Massachusetts Smart Program, Colorado, and um, Michigan, so many different markets taking the mantle, uh, passing it, that have built incremental change to bring a community solar market to, to fruition. Illinois, and many others where they, <clears throat> for us on the solar coaster, we have to ride the boom and bust of regulators trying to figure out how to turn the dials, how to tweak the knobs and figure out where incentive needs to be applied because a lot of, a lot of markets are, 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 uh, are coin fed, you know? So it's fascinating for me to think from a development perspective, not only you wait for the aggregators to have the sophistication to be able to bring enough subscribers along board. You have to wait for finance, tax and tax equity and debt to get comfortable with regulatory framework, which is super complicated on a state level basis. Um, but you day in and day out have to still build this portfolio. The good news is you're building inventory of a product that has multiple outlets. Some are more profitable than others as a business person. How do you think about where a company like renewable properties sits in the overarching architecture of the solar industry generally and also the community solar sector? And I want you to answer that through the following question. Who do you sell to? What problems do you solve for those clients? I think it might be more than meets the eye. You know, it's the, the, the who do you sell to is an interesting one. I remember uh, when I was interviewing actually um, many years ago, this was in uh, early 2010 or late 2009. Um, and, uh, you know, as an interview this person, he was like, yeah, it's a sales job. I was like, well, this is like project development. What do you mean it's a sales job? He's like, <laughs> it's a sales job. Like talking to the landowner, that's a sale. Talking yeah, to the permitting exactly. agency, that's a sale. You know, talking to the utility company, that's a sale. You know, talking to these, and he went on and on and on, and 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 you actually you're you're constantly selling in this in this business. But what we are selling is, you know, it, it, it's it's a little different who the audience is. So this all starts, you know, we're first of all we're, we're to answer your other question, 
Renewable Properties at its core is a greenfield developer. We're a greenfield developer that then finances, owns, and operates majority of the projects that we develop or originate on our balance sheet long term. Uh, some would call that an independent power producer, um, and, and that's really kind of what we are. But really at our core, like, what do we do really well? What do we do better than everybody else is develop projects. Uh, and developing projects starts with site acquisition. I mean, that's and that's how I got into this business back in 2008 was through the real estate side of the deal. So renewable properties is really focused on site acquisition and has a very good playbook around how we go and secure our sites and how we interact with landowners. And that's really in community solar. That's the biggest sale that you do. The rest of it in some markets can be kind of programmatic, right? Okay, so I have my site secured. Then I go file for interconnection. Interconnection comes back economically viable. Then I go get my permits. Okay, I have my permits. Now I get my incentive or award for that community solar program. I've secured that. Now I go and I partner with the third-party subscriber company to subscribe the project. All right, now I go and I get my EPC lined up to build it. I go get my financing, right? I go and I build it. I get my O&M provider, and then I'm owning and operating this thing, right? That's just pumping clean electrons into the grid. And so every step of the way there's a sale, you know, sometimes people are selling us and in other instances we're selling them. But to your point, we touch a lot of people uh, throughout the solar value chain and, um, you know, greenfield developers add a tremendous amount of value in, in this industry. I mean, it's, it's a big, big part of the business. You know, one of the things that stood out for me, we were talking in one of our last conversations about the pressure of the early days, the consequence of losing a deal when you've got 10 deals in the pipeline versus a gigawatt in the pipeline. Um, you've had some tremendous success building um, sort of success on success, putting those blocks in place, becoming excellent at site acquisition. It's the, it's the blocking and tackling of project development. Can you talk a bit about some of the, the milestones that you think about or that you share with your team that are proof points that what you're doing not only matters, but is invalidated in the marketplace. You know, a couple of things that stand out to me are some of the early projects where you got to go do a deal with your old boss and Borrego, right? Um, a really important deal for you guys early in your career as, and them. you've uh, also recently announced both uh, a 50 plus million dollar portfolio and uh, securing a $25 million capital investment. Uh, what can you tell us about some of the things that have become that you can point to as examples of what might be considered success in this game? Yeah, no, that's great. And there's kind of like two two ways to answer that, right? There's financial milestones uh, in the company history that are you know okay, we're doing something right. We secured a big chunk of money from this serious institutional investor, and those are great milestones that we point to and celebrate along the ways. And then there's the bro- the blocking and tackling, like the project specific milestones that you point to and you and you celebrate. And, you know, for renewable properties, going back to your point, you know, when I started the company and uh, the kitchen table in my rent control department here in San Francisco, it was me putting my head down, doing what I know how to do and going out and securing sites and developing projects. And believe it or not, you know, so in development, you're doing, uh, it's it's a low success rate, right? Like if, if someone's a greenfield developer and says, oh yeah, like majority of the deals that I take on, I actually get to completion. Uh, I, I don't think that's true. 
Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a it's a risky proposition. You're underwriting a low success probability in general. Uh, and then it's all about kind of how you mitigate your development spend getting to that yes or no. And uh, for us, uh, the first land option that I signed actually ended up being the first deal that Renewable Properties built, which you mentioned we hired Borrego Solar as our EPC. Now, there was many other land options that I signed from that first one uh, forward that didn't you know, materialize, but it just so happened that the first site that we put under option ended up being our flagship project, and that's here Amazing. in the greater Bay Area. It's called the American Canyon uh, Solar Project. It's located in Napa County with the off-taker being uh, MCE, formerly known as Marin Clean Energy. They're the largest CCA in the state of California, the original CCA, uh, a, a client that we've done a tremendous amount of business with uh, over the years. Uh, but yeah. that that was a big one for the company back then. Uh, and there's been other projects along the way. Uh, as you mentioned, as the company was ramping up from, you know, really when I raised our first outside round of, pro- of capital was 10 projects totaling 60 megawatts to now a, a, a gigawatt pipeline across 150 projects, you know, there was a period of, of many years where it was like, okay, like this deal has to happen because it, it's going to make <laughs> yeah. or break, you know, some things. And it was, it was high stress. Now, fortunately those days are behind us. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's one of those businesses where the more, chips you have on the table, uh, the overall risk profile of your business goes down dramatically, right? If you're all in on one or two investments versus, you know, have it spread across 150, um, you know, it's, it's a better deal. You, um, in many ways have spent the last six plus years building out the equivalent as a project developer of a venture capital portfolio, right? Yeah. The, not all of them are going to win. Not all projects are going to come across the finish line. They're not all going to be on profitable or you know, successful nodes where you can get interconnection. Um, and it's learning how to, as a venture capital would, place those bets. That is a part of the fabric of the playbook and how you do it. Um, you know, I, h- how do you get your team comfortable with that? Because for you, it's you're the venture capitalist, right? But the teams operate. The, the developers on your team now, like they are now in the place where they have to build out a portfolio of projects where if one misses, it doesn't ruin their annual lunch, so to speak. How do you think about that from a culture perspective as well? You know, culture is something that we prioritize greatly here at Renewable Properties. Mm-hmm. It's probably the thing I am the most proud of is the team that we've assembled, that the company culture that we have built uh, and one of the foundational kind of cornerstones to that is transparency. Um, you know, I have the company is now 50 people uh, across the United States. You know, our employees range from folks that it's their first job out of college to folks that are 20, 30 years seasoned into their professional careers um, in everything in between. And the one piece of feedback that I get consistently from the team uh, is that they appreciate the transparency and the candor around how the company is performing, mm. both you know qualitatively and quantitatively. We do quarterly offsites where we just had it actually uh, last week where we review the previous quarter's performance. We talk about our financial statements. We talk about our pipeline. We talk about where we're going as a business. Uh, and 
you know, I think that's it's it's something that you cannot um it's just something that is so critical if you're in this line of work, right? Like if you're in this line of work and you're not being transparent and and you're trying to hide the ball to your other point, you know, it'd be hard for, for those people on the front lines to truly understand, okay, is this, is this going to make or break me kind of thing? Right. And, um, and so it's, it's, it's good business practice in general, and it sounds silly saying it, but there's plenty of companies out there that don't necessarily see it the same way. I mean, you guys are doing a tremendous job, by the way, of getting out in front of um, news cycles and we'll talk some about some of the stuff that you've been involved in from a writing perspective, just getting, um, using words as capital. But let's talk about the dollars as capital for a moment. You, you know, I mentioned the 53 million portfolio, the fund nine, and also the 25 million on the outside looking in. There are a lot of folks who just wouldn't understand the differentiation between different capital structures. Um, so before I jump really into a lot of the other things that um, that really help to serve folks understanding how you uh, grew up or how you built the business, could you parse for us a little bit the differentiation in those announcements that um, really came in in fairly rapid succession? You know, one in August, one in November. So uh, the business is capital intensive. Uh, it's capital intensive both on the project side and on the corporate side, and so. Um, on the project side, we've raised something like a little over 450 million of project capital. So that's you know tax equity, permanent debt, construction debt to facilitate uh, the build out uh, of a little over 150 megawatts of solar across 37 projects. That's separate from the amount of capital we've raised at the corporate level. Um, so our first outside rent. Uh, actually, if I, if I, uh, let me just back up. So the amount of committed corporate capital that we have today uh, is about $135 million. I had to think about that because as you mentioned, we just closed a $25 million line of credit at the corporate level uh, to continue to facilitate our growth. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. Uh, and, and we have not used all the capital that we have, we have raised a big part of this business is staying in front of it and keeping your powder yeah. dry. Um, the swings are are large, especially as the amount of projects that you're pushing through the machine. So it's a working capital problem yeah. that you're solving for. So as you're pushing more projects through your machine, that working capital problem just grows. And so you need to continue to stay in front of it. Uh, and yeah, so we've been, it's been a priority. I, I, again, kind of going back to my experience of being in the industry, I've seen too many entrepreneurs in this industry create a tremendous amount of value and not be able to capture it for themselves as a result of poor capital planning, as a result of being caught short. Uh, and so that also has been very front and center for me as I started Renewable Property six and a half years ago and still to this day, despite all the success that we've had. Could you talk to me about, I just want to back out uh, a bit and give folks a sense of really who you are and kind of what formed you. You're the eldest of three brothers born and raised in Chico, California. How did cowboy boots uh, come into sort of the story of the making of Aaron Halimi? It's a big part of the story. Very big part. So uh, I grew up selling cowboy boots at my father's Western wear store up in Chico, California, ever since the age of eight years old. 
So going back to the other comment of this being a sales sales job, uh, been selling cowboy boots for a really long time, catering to the clientele that are typically the same clientele when securing land for solar projects, right? Rural, yeah. agricultural, farmers, uh, cattle grazers, or just landowners mm. in general. Um, so that played I, a- I'm sure that plays in. Yeah, I was just, we said the same word, plays into understanding the psyche. Correct. Of those- of those buyers, Correct. Uh, you know, that's, I'm, I love how that we were able to weave that in because I intentionally ask, who are your buyers? How do you, who do you sell to? Because I want to give folks a chance to understand the multivariate equation that developers are in sort of tightrope of developers are walking. But it ultimately, a lot of folks didn't realize this back when you and I were getting in the game, how important it is. You'd see city slickers going out trying to lease land. And um, the guys that were really doing it well were going out in a beat up truck with jeans and boots on and talking about, you know, farm stuff, not about converting the farm to some other um, type of asset. So does being the eldest in the family uh, contribute in any way to your sense, like a sense of, of ownership, obligation, entrepreneurship? Where did you first see that seed planted? Yeah, no, it's a great question, William. My my father's an entrepreneur, and as I mentioned earlier, grew up selling cowboy boots with him. And you know, talking about business around the dinner table or at the home was very very common, and you know, still is today as as we as we get together as a family. And and so I think that that played a big part of it. And and you're correct; I'm the eldest of of three three boys. Uh, we're all about five years apart. Oh, wow! And. Uh, and you're still very close, you know, very close with my brothers and and mm. family, and and you know they they they've played a big part of my success. You know, I when I started renewable properties, the first round of outside capital that I raised was a friends and family round, and it was a true friends and family round where I had some family and had a lot of friends and had some industry colleagues and cobbled together about a million dollars across eighteen people, and um and then things got real and and quite honestly all those people are still uh still with me today as investors in this business and, so, and those are all the corporate level yeah all at the corporate level yeah man yes. what a cool ride to be able to take with your friends yeah that's fun yeah. you know one of the things that i know is important for you g- given the ethos of growing up in um a part of california that really it's it's a part of california that most people don't truly understand we laugh at folks. I come from a very farm town culture in rural South Carolina, and I moved to California. And people were like, "Oh, it's just beach bums and you know Silicon Valley rich kids." And I was like, "Actually, <laughs> no. That's like the thinnest sliver of the state, yeah. all the way on the coast. Yeah. You know, like um, the rest of the state would gladly chop those uh, the, that piece of the country, the state off, give it its own name." Um, there's a deep American culture of of farming and oil and um, and and family routine resilience uh, self reliance. Um, how does that ethos circle back for you to the mission of the business that you've created? The mission of getting more renewable energy onto the grid doesn't happen without being able to work with those people that you're describing, um, you know, rural landowners across the United States, not just California, but across the United States. When I, when I started renewable properties, uh, I had a, two discrete development strategies. One, one was here in the Bay Area, 
with MCE, and the other one was in South Carolina. So I was constantly getting on a plane, flying across the country to meet with landowners in rural South Carolina to sign options yeah. to start my business. And Where in South Carolina? I'm from South Carolina. Yeah, so uh, we're primarily targeting uh, the upstate, so Greenville and Spartanburg County mm-hmm. specifically. Yeah, uh, Duke Territory. Yeah, Duke Territory. Uh, we have a portfolio of projects out there now as a result of that initial effort, you know, six and a half years ago. Um, and so very much, very much, you know, that ethos that you're describing and you're spot on. I think a lot of people forget that if you drive, you know, an hour, uh, an hour east from where I'm located here and I'm, I'm sitting in downtown San Francisco right now, uh, middle of California looks a lot more like middle America than it does coastal yeah. California. You don't have to go far either. No, you don't have to go the full hour. You probably go 30 right? minutes and, and find it. <laughs> yeah. To be with you. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's where I grew up and that's where my family still is. And it's a big part of who I am. And and quite frankly, I attribute a lot of my success to that upbringing and that knowledge base and being a person who prides himself on being able to connect with all walks of life uh, and, and, and find connection with people. All energy is local as our, uh, our friend Bill Nussie likes to say local energy is all that matters. And, and that means that all of the, uh, you know, everything is distributed. Uh, we have to learn to operate at a local level. Like what, a, what a testament to your ability to take what you knew as entrepreneurship, as well as what you learned later in life as real estate and match it to the, um, the opportunity to bring local power to Many families and farmers where the, the, the following generations, my generation is not taking the mantle to run the farm. They're looking for other uses for that farm or they're looking to sell it, to put it towards some other entrepreneurial venture that the family's engaged in or, or growing you know, trees or farming other, other items, right? Why not farm electrons? Yep. Well, I think what would be really fun as well to tell, because you got a bunch of fun stories, is uh, helping Sun Edison get into the utility scale solar game. <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, I got into solar uh, through the land side of the deal back in January of 2008. And really, you know, my passion for fighting climate change uh, and really making it my business ethos and what I'm going to devote my career to dates back to my time in graduate school here in San Francisco in the MBA program at University of San Francisco and taking a managerial ethics course where, you know, determined that I could align my ethical perspective with my business practices. And Mm. this was back in 2006. So the rise of the green economy was a thing that people were talking about. And you had all these, you know, things intersecting, you had, you know, politics and, you know, regulatory frameworks, renewable portfolio standards starting to come to be, you had, you know, the capital markets getting interested and you had star power, you had celebrities talking about it and really Mm. wanting to kind of do something. And so you had all these things converging around a you know, a, a sector that had really been around for a while, right? I mean, solar has been around since 1980 uh, or even before 1980, 1970, right? Like it's been around for a really long time, but you had this confluence of events that really started to make it mainstream. And I said, okay, I'm going to devote myself to this. And so I'd gotten done with graduate school and I originally was, you know, harnessed my energy around 
green real estate development, so developing energy-efficient buildings, LEED-certified, water-efficient, you know, on-site renewables, sustainable materials, things like that. And and ultimately, while I was trying to figure that out, um, you know, my family had some land uh, up in rural Northern California that they weren't doing anything with. And I was like, you know what? You know, maybe we could, you know, do a solar farm out there. You know, again, a renewable portfolio standard was just happening. Uh, you know, PG&E was talking about doing solar. And so I started cold calling uh, the utilities, PG&E specifically, and the few solar companies that existed back then and and was trying to get them to put a solar project on on my family's land. And so my pitch ended up being, you know, lease my land, put solar here. Uh, fast forward about a year and a half later, I ended up signing a land lease uh, with Sun Edison and ended up being their first utility scale land lease in the middle of 2009. Um, uh, the project ultimately did not get built, but as you can imagine, I learned a tremendous amount about solar development through that process and ultimately took some money that we were generating off that lease and optioned a second piece of property that was better suited for a solar development and had a couple solar projects going entrepreneurially on the side when my day job was doing real estate investment work and you know ultimately said, you know this is this is fun. I want to do this full time and uh, ended up landing a job at Borrego Solar and worked there for many, many years as a developer and did a lot of projects uh, with the Hall brothers and the rest of the executive team and and folks uh, at Borrego. And, um, and so, yeah, that's that's the story. In a world where lots of solar technology providers seem to blend together and have little differentiation, it truly is necessary that you are able to dig deeper, get more resources and tools, and have more breadth of opportunity to learn and share with your core partners. Trina Solar is leaning in to the many requests for the Trina Hub, the new global partner portal dedicated to giving partner training courses and certifications as well as a full asset library of pre-built and co-branded marketing resources for channel support. I'd like to encourage you to try Trina Hub for yourself. See how it helps grow your solar business and develop or enhance your digital marketing ecosystem. Learn more and sign up today at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. Hey friends, I have a proposition for you. Instead of freezing your tail off like I am here in North Carolina, why don't you jump on a plane Come to San Diego, January 17th to 19th, and hang out with us at InterSolar. InterSolar North America and Energy Storage North America, as you're probably aware, one of the premier U.S.-based trade show and conferences focused on solar energy storage and EV charging infrastructure. Suncast listeners can get free access to the expo hall by using the code SUNCAST at intersolar.us. That code will also get you 20% off your conference. Pass to learn, connect, and conduct business with the most innovative companies in the solar and energy storage business. Go to intersolar.us, use the code SUNCAST. And hey, don't forget to stick around all the way through Friday because yours truly may be on stage at the Solar Games. Come check it out. See you in San Diego. That's a great story, man. I love how you followed your instinct in particular the, the a lot of us in that time frame i was in grad school finishing in 2006 as well looking at getting lead ap 
looking at renewables, ultimately started a residential solar company in central California. Like we were all in the same trajectory, seeing the same opportunity. And, um, yeah, I didn't have land in California or South Carolina that I could lease at the time. Nobody would have cared in South Carolina at, at the moment, but it's fascinating having been on, uh, sort of another side of the, of the, uh, of the pool, kind of watching everything work and having worked with Sun Edison to think about the team that you had been working with there and the foresight that it took to, to scrap together the knowledge that far ahead of the market on leasing the land. I mean, I don't know if I shared this with you, but one of my bosses back when I was in project development said something that always stuck with me. He said, solar is real estate without the occupancy risk. Can you, I'm sure you can appreciate that. Can you talk a bit about the similarities of real estate and why, in fact, a lot of uh, successful uh, solar developers have real estate as a background? I describe solar as a real estate development deal with an added layer of complexity. Your added layer of complexity is that you're dealing in many instances with an incumbent utility. So a single um, offtaker, uh, a single counterparty uh, that you can sell to. Now, that's not the case in community solar, which is one of the other great benefits of community solar is its liquidity in the market in terms of your ability to you know, bring in different customers and, and you swap them out. Uh, it's highly liquid from a revenue perspective. But just generally speaking, this is a real estate development deal. That's what it is. In fact, a lot of people invested in my business early on, given my strong background in real estate and my understanding of real estate. And that's really, you know, when I say real estate, that's all encompassing, right? That's the economics of land. That's title, you know, uh, the different encumbrances or liens or restrictions or easements, uh, right-of-ways, things that could trip you up if you're not experienced in that regard. Yeah. Uh, and then last, but certainly not least, probably most importantly, ability to navigate local, complex permitting processes, mm -hmm. right? Getting those discretionary land use approvals, which ultimately are the thing that is holding us back the most, right? I mean, what's really holding back this engine? Um, there's a couple things. Uh, interconnection, right? Ability to connect to available capacity. The grid is is old. The grid needs to be upgraded to take on all this additional generation. But the other thing, the thing that at, if I'm at a dinner party and I talk about what I do and they say, oh, that must be great. Everybody loves it. Or at least in the early days, they said that nowadays they, yeah. they know that it's a polarizing topic. Yeah. That local opposition is there and that that is in many instances holding us back from achieving our climate change goals. The transition for you to community solar is uh, in, in many ways, I would say, like, I would look at it as kind of whole cloth. You were a pure play project developer looking at the one to 20, uh, D, what we call DG utility space and said, well, there's clearly a better way to position this product. Again, as an entrepreneur, we're in the business of creating products, finding buyers for those products, selling those products for uh, equal or shared value, right? You need to have profit and profit margin, and the better you can improve your profit margin while still delivering a great product, that means your ability to scale is um, uh, gives you an advantage over <laughs> competitors who can't do that. Specifically, community solar, you have said is 
you can effectively prove or there are ways to point to how it is a less risky business than utility scale bus bar based solar. Could you unpack that a little for us? You just mentioned the liquidity. Talk a little bit more in detail. Sure. So I think it's it's twofold. Um, First and foremost, you know, the utility scale business historically um, is dominated by uh, RFPs. Uh, And so in order to get a PPA for a utility scale project, uh, you have to bid into a utility RFP or, you know, what's what's been the flavor of the last couple of years is is RFP for a large corporate offtake uh, on a utility scale deal. Um, so you're bidding into those programs uh, has a very low uh, probability of success of getting awarded that revenue contract. And that revenue contract is ultimately what allows you to get project financing to construct that project. Right. To actually monetize your asset. Community Solar, uh, on the other hand, is not an RFP program. It's typically a regulatory framework. Um, There's a program, there's an incentive, there's an application process, uh, but it's not uh, as low probability as, let's say, bidding into a large competitive solicitation. So I think that's one, one point of differentiation. So you as a developer, if you're a developer at your core, those assets that you're developing have a higher likelihood of getting to monetization if you're chasing community solar programs instead of utility RFPs, right? That aside, let's say you get that utility RFP. Let's say you get that utility contract, that bus bar PPA. If that utility goes out of business, if that, uti- if that utility contract expires, you don't really have many places you can go with that electricity. You can dump it into the wholesale market, but that's that's really kind of it. Community Solar, on the other hand, you're subscribing with hundreds, if not thousands of customers on a given asset. If a subscriber decides that they don't want to be part of this anymore and they leave, you simply just replace them with somebody else. It's highly liquid. It's interchangeable, right? The credit risk, the credit profile is not necessarily as critical because if you have an issue, it's easy to just swap them out. Um, and so I consistently make the argument that it's actually a safer deal. It's a better deal than owning a utility deal. Now, I might be a little biased because I've now pivoted my entire business to this product type, but maybe I'm not. Maybe it's just that I did the analysis and you know I'm a, I'm a business guy and on a risk-adjusted basis, that's where I can make the most money for myself and my shareholders and my employees. I love that. You're answering a lot of uh, things that sort of are sitting in the back of my mind um, around the the pros and cons, how one weighs the options as an entrepreneur. And, you know, you want to take the path of least resistance, uh, both for electrons, that's what they want to do, as well as for capital. And it took a while for capital to get comfortable with the fungibility of the of the uh, of the electrons fungibility as well of the of the credit score. I mean, the credit score is a big piece of this. You know, there's a lot of shoulders that folks are able to stand on now of, of folks that really went to battle, yourself included, to ensure that the regulations were put in place, that the, the capital allocation um, providers, the debt and equity providers, could believe that the you know the ability to swap subscribers was a more fungible and liquid market than the ability to lock in one of these sort of uh, 
tried and true utility deals. Uh, I want to get into a little bit of, of storytelling here because I feel like our industry just does not do a good job of it. Um, you've uh, done a great job, I think. You've gotten great coverage for yourself, um, and I see you uh, putting putting thoughtful, uh, candid conversations uh, in place around public perception, around uh, you know what's happening with California uh, federal incentives for community solar. Talk a bit at the at the outset just around the fundamental importance of storytelling and how you are weaving it into the business of growing your own solar enterprise. The biggest job for a solar developer is education. This business is fundamentally about educating those that you're interacting with. Uh, it's telling them what solar is and what it isn't. There's a lot of misinformation out there uh, nowadays, certainly all over the internet. And um, and so a big part of the job is storytelling. What What is solar? You know, solar is a safe, reliable way to get clean energy onto the grid. There's no hazardous materials. There's no noise. There's no odor. There's no traffic. Um, you know, solar is actually a good neighbor uh, in your community. It's a way in which you can in, in, ensure that that parcel of land isn't going to be a paved parking lot or the next, yeah. you know, mall or strip target. center or yeah. office building, right? And that's really important. I think the other piece of it is, what are we solving for? So I, I'll give you a real example. Just the other day, we have a project here in California where we're having a tough time with the local jurisdiction on getting our project through the process. And they're going back and forth, back and forth over this technical study, a decommissioning plan, which, you know, quite frankly, is typically not something that you go back and forth with, um, you know, a county on. And I said to my team, I said, hey, have we communicated to these folks what this project does for their local community? Have we, have we, you know, sat there and said, hey, this is a disadvantaged community project. This is a project that actually provides economic savings to low to moderate income people in their county and in their surrounding area. Do they know that? Do they know that they're actually being, a, you know, obstructionist to a project that is not only getting clean energy onto the grid, combating climate change, but also helping those in need. Do they really know that? Because if they don't, they need to know that. Because once they know that, we might be able to move them off high center, right? And so I think we as an industry have to prioritize educating those that we're doing business with. We cannot be shy about the economic benefits as well as the you know, environmental benefits that our projects are bringing. And the fact that it's a low-use development, it's a low-impact development, so it doesn't really draw much on those city or county services. And in many areas across the country, can generate additional tax revenue for those jurisdictions. What do you think that the media and perhaps obstructionists that are feeding the media get wrong about or what are the narratives that we have to combat and what do people get wrong about the business generally that we have to set straight? A lot of it is fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. um, so fear of the unknown, you know, again, thinking that, you know, these projects generate EMF, that these projects have hazardous materials, that these projects 
create noise, odor, traffic, all of these intensive land uses, right? Like the biggest misconception when you're dealing with permitting a solar project is someone's like, oh, this is an industrial use. Don't put that industrial use on agricultural land. Mm. Well, wait a second, wait a second. An industrial use is like a parking lot in a building and yeah. they're, you know, manufacturing something like, yeah. hold on, time out. I'm talking about leaving the ground as it is, driving some steel posts into the ground, erecting a racking, you know, structure and putting solar panels on the rack. In fact, that ground below it is open space still. I can plant a pollinator plant meadow. I can right. have sheep graze there. I could have honeybees there. I could have row crops there. I could do all sorts of things and still utilize that land. It's not an industrial use. This is a low impact use. Uh, so it's a big kind of piece, right? The other piece is around conservation. It's actually tied to it. You know, a lot of people you know, fall out of their chair and they're like, wait a second, local conservation groups, environmentally minded people are opposing your solar project? Yeah, you know, they think I'm, you know, gonna, you know, destroy the ecosystem here by putting this project. But in fact, I'm not. And here's why not. And here's all the reasons why I'm not. Um, you know, and I guess the other thing that 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 is an education thing, which, you know, this is this is somewhat binary, but it's it's just sub, it's subjective is what it is, is the visual aesthetics of solar. Right. Some people say, I don't want to look at solar. I don't like what it looks like. Well, hold on a second. I like what it looks like. I like looking at it because it tells me that we're actually trying to do something about this problem called climate change. Yeah. And mm. so the visual aesthetics about, I want to see it. I don't want to see it becomes a, a hot topic of debate when trying to get a project there. Even like if I'm talking to someone about what I do, you know, I'll get an unsolicited <laughs> comment about, Oh, I can't stand looking at solar panels. Okay. Yeah. That's great. You can't stand them. That's great. But guess what? I love them. Yeah. That's and, like saying know, I can't stand looking at Lamborghinis. Is it sure. Is it there you go. Does it remind you of something that you don't like about cultural icons? I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I will point folks to uh, an article you guys uh, got in Prop Moto as well. Real estate loves community solar. Public perception is hampering growth. There's a lot going on in the in the zeitgeist right now around how uh, how we can get the right kinds of incentives aligned and the right kinds of um, distractions removed in terms of uh, elevating the, the community solar uh, voice. Is there anything that uh, about that article or, or some of the other stuff that you've written on that you'd like to talk about here for folks that are maybe unfamiliar with some of the obstructions, obstruction that's happening in markets that are preventing community solar? You know, I think we covered it kind of in some of my previous comments, but what I will say is that states across the country are starting to take notice. And some states are better about it than others. And some states are mandating that towns and counties have solar ordinances and that provide a clear path to permitting a solar project if that solar project meets those standards. Illinois is, is a great example of that right now. You know, despite those standards, there's still opposition. I mean, we just had a project the other day that's running into a lot of opposition and we're going to have to, you know, really go the, go the distance on this one. And, um, you know, it's that that's what I would ask if if you're a local policymaker and you're listening to this, know that you can take a leadership position 
you know, climate change is a global problem, but it requires local solutions. So it requires people at the local level to really spend the time to look at it and to create a pathway for permitting these projects. Um, and so, you know, I'd love to see more of that. In my home state of California, uh, you know, has the CEQA process, which is, a, is an incredibly challenging permitting process. And I would love to see the state of California pass some legislation to expedite the permitting of solar projects through that process um, because it's littered with landmines and delays and, um, you know, in many instances, subjective criteria. Is there uh, is there state regulation or policy that you observe as best in class that other states could follow suit? Yeah. Well, so I think, um, yeah, I think, New York uh, does a good job from a community solar framework perspective. Uh, I think they also have a decent, you know, um, way in which solar ordinances are created, although they have these moratoriums that are placed, which really can delay things immensely. So I'm not too fond of that. Um, you know, Illinois, like I said, recently passed that piece of legislation that effectively requires all towns and counties to have uh, a solar ordinance and that there's a path to actually getting a solar project done. Um, so that's obviously great. We'd love to see more of that. Um, so most of my examples are more on the community solar framework side than the uh, permitting side, just because I think there's still a lot of work to do on the permitting side. Well, we've seen the market evolve. In fact, the the very existence of community solar as the, what we call the fourth vertical is an evolution in the industry. Any notable evolution lately that helps you differentiate in the marketplace? you'd like to speak on? Yeah. So when I think about my company, uh, I think about us as a company that specializes in developing distributed energy resources. So electrical infrastructure projects uh, at distribution scale. So we started out developing solar projects. That is our bread and butter. We do that very well. We continue to do that. We have started doing energy storage, both standalone energy storage as well as solar plus storage in many markets. And our newest product type that we're launching that we're super excited about uh, is uh, EV infrastructure. So EV infrastructure, charging depots specifically for medium to heavy duty fleets uh, that are focused on last mile deliveries. Um, and, you know, the commonality across all those different product types is very simple. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's the real estate, right? The site acquisition, the securing the sites that have viable interconnection, that have viable paths to permitting, right? Anybody can secure a site, but can you secure a site that has a high likelihood of success? That's what differentiates us from, from others. And so taking that playbook and applying it to other product types, other energy product types, now something that we're doing and really excited about. And, um, you know, I used to get these, those, those, that feeling, that warm, fuzzy feeling about, I still get it about solar, but back in 2008, when I was like trying to figure this out, I was like, oh, if I can figure this out, like this is going to be awesome. I get that feeling about EV charging right now, about EV infrastructure specifically. And I've had it for a while. And we're excited. We just recently bought our first piece of land for an EV charging project. So we're not just talking about it. We're actually doing it. We haven't, haven't built anything yet, but we are financially committed. Um, and so we're we're super excited about it. And I think it's going to be a great growth story 
for not only our business, but for the industry. I'm really excited to hear you saying that. Do you see the opportunity as, from a real estate development perspective, as a complement to or potential competition for companies like Form? I think uh, Forum is one of a handful of companies that exist that are targeting this market right now and is identical to the competitive landscape back in 2008 for solar when there was a maybe a handful of companies doing it. And look at us now with hundreds of companies with plenty of opportunity across the United States. It's going to be the same. If, if anything, it actually could potentially be a bigger market. Yeah. I mean, I'm seeing like I've seen a number of developers like the guys there and Dan and the guys at Current that are raising hundreds of millions of dollars for EV charging infrastructure, specifically around this last mile, um, as, as exactly the the segment that you're pointing to, which is to say, the the uh, the smart guys usually are out in front and and see things earlier. You're gonna have some arrows in your back, but I appreciate you guys putting on the putting on the the plow on the front of the train to help clear the way. Um, it's really. Uh, it's it's very, very needed. As we look out to 2024 and beyond, what, uh, what if any predictions do you have, how the market's evolving, where we might see roadblocks that we continue to, we're going to continue to get, I mean, we're going to need as an industry to continue to increase our collective lobby and our, our collective voice. Uh, but there are opportunities, which you've just talked about, some of the ways that you see the market evolving, and then where are the areas where we need to, collectively band together this is a people business hmm. uh, so people power right we need more talented folks joining the renewable energy industry we need more folks um in our specific sector but we also need more folks in the sectors that we touch right lawyers accountants land surveyors engineers biologists right all of these people uh, we need more of you. We also need more solar professionals, uh, but we need all of those people. So there's a people problem and the people power and the people behind this business is what's going to continue to propel the growth. Yeah. And hinder it if we don't, if we don't answer that. The, oh, the 100%. Yeah. 100%. We as an industry need to continue to aggressively recruit and attract talent from other industries where there's transferable skills uh, and, and even in industries where there might not be. We need to really be focused on that. Um, the other thing in terms of, you know, headwinds, this is obviously a capital intensive business. It is a high interest rate environment right now. Uh, I'm hopeful that in 2024, things will normalize and even start to decline. But that obviously would be helpful uh, for those that are out there developing uh, projects. You know, the the other thing that I'm probably most excited about is, is look, the IRA has been the single biggest piece of climate legislation that we have seen and is propelling growth, throwing fuel on the fire for this industry. That said, we've yet to truly monetize a lot of those additional ITC adders, specifically the low income uh, adders. And so I'm excited about the fact that in 2024, those will start to materialize for this industry and continue to fuel growth and investment and excitement in our business moving forward. Yeah, the, also there's um, the coalescing around transferable tax that is just a huge, huge opportunity to really propel the industry forward. Uh, recently did an episode on that. That is fascinating. There's so many ways that folks are 
just wrapping their heads around how we're going to be able to, how we're really going to be able to make uh, huge strides in the coming year, in the coming decade. Aaron, it has been uh, fascinating to get your insight into how the industry is growing and how you've positioned renewable properties and your entrepreneurial journey. As we wrap, I'd like to get a bit of an insight into what you see as the sort of the critical path to what we all believe is necessary and possible, which is uh, a decarbonized or de-greenhouse gasified. We got to come up with a good word for that uh, grid that contributes to preventing, you know, escalating beyond one and a half or two degrees Celsius, depending on which cop you've been to. If we're looking back from, you know, 2050, and you and I are nearing the end of our careers, uh, and we're happy and proud of the work that we've done, we've unlocked these big, audacious, hairy goals. What did we get right? I'm going to go back to the people, because I truly believe that we have the technological solutions today to deploy at scale and to beat this thing. And so if we have the people both within the industry, but also external to the industry, right? So if we had the right pieces of legislation around solving problems with the grid, with the aging infrastructure, the right pieces of legislation around accelerating the permitting of these facilities, that as we sit here today, we have the right technological solution set to beat this thing. And it goes back to just being able to deploy it at scale and deploy it quickly. You said something earlier that I think is really key to that as well. And that is helping folks identify and understand the transferable skills they bring from all walks of life. And that this industry is more than just uh, boots on roof, bolting steel to the ground. Uh, there are many, many, many different skill sets that we need. And not only do we need to replace the aging infrastructure with flexible resources and a distributed grid, um, not only do we have the technological solutions to win this race, but when we have won, it will be because we were able to marshal the people that help move the society forward. As always, Aaron, it's a pleasure to get to know you better. Aaron Halimi is the founder, chief executive for Renewable Properties. Keep an eye on them. They're doing big things now in community, solar, and to come in electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Hope that we'll have a chance to bring you back on the show soon, Aaron. Thanks, Nico. Really appreciate it, man. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation and a wrap on 2023, a year that has seen so many interesting conversations. I want to say thank you to Tor once again, my friend Solar Fred, for helping make the make the interview happen with Aaron. Aaron, my friend, it's been so fantastic watching you really come into your own as an entrepreneur, exercise the skills from your family business, from the the real estate learning and parlay that into one of today's most interesting community solar companies. I'm excited to see the evolution, not just of how renewable properties is approaching electric vehicle infrastructure, but how the opportunities for distributed energy resources really do open up the portfolio and the pot for all developers. Lean into your skill set, learn those transferable skills, apply them to the industry. And like Aaron, you can have a successful venture 
I hope that in this year you've learned a thing or two about energy storage and concentrating solar, neither of which are going anywhere anytime soon, despite all the naysaying. I hope that you've learned a lot about how solar development and capitalizing businesses works, how the residential sector is dealing with the reduction in demand, the increase in interest rates. Uh, So many, many interesting things that we've been able to cover in the last 365. I look forward to 2024 and all the wonderful examples of clean energy leadership that we're going to bring to you. We're kicking the year off right next week with an interview with my friend Stephen Sue from Trina Solar, where we go really, really deep into the entire backstory of Trina Solar becoming one of the leading solar manufacturers in the world. In this, I'll say never before recorded conversation with Stephen. Uh, he's never he's never given this kind of an interview in this depth. So I hope that you uh, will come back next week and enjoy that, which is our first episode of the new year, our first long form interview at least. And I want to say thank you to the companies that have helped support through the year, PV Case, Trina Solar, Bodhi, Unirac, of course, SunGrow, who has been our platinum sponsor for two years now. So grateful for the companies that help make this show free to you so that you can tune in. The only thing it costs you is your time and attention. I'm grateful that you've given us that today. I hope that you find it rewarding. If you'd like to connect with us, please go to mysuncast.com. There are a myriad of ways to do so as well as find out how you can connect with those sponsors. We link to them all right there on the homepage. And of course, in 2024, we'd love to help tell your story as well. Please reach out and let us know if you'd be interested in learning how we could help you in your content marketing and telling your story to the world. We've got to raise the volume of the voice of the clean energy revolution. That's what we're doing here on Suncast. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up. It is half the battle.